So good morning everyone as we continue our sermon series in Ephesians today. I really want to do a quick recap of where we are and how we got here. We're working our way through this fabulous letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. There's two things we need to remember about this letter. Firstly, we need to remember that this letter was written in 62 AD while Paul was under house arrest in Rome. And some of us might know something about this now. And while we're slowly coming out of isolation, we're socially interacting, you might be thinking, what have you just done with the last eight weeks of your life? You might have feelings of regret that you didn't use the time to your full potential. You might have feelings of elation because you've mastered a new skill. Well, today we've got a little peek inside Paul's mind to see what his attitude was towards his forced isolation. Secondly, Ephesus was a capital of Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. It was a commercial centre, and as we heard last week from Ross Harvey as he worked through Ephesians 2:11 to 22, it was a city of pagans. But this city of pagans heard the good news, the gospel, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so this letter was written to these gathering of Christians throughout Ephesus and the surrounding countryside. And Paul wrote this letter not just to one church, but to all the churches. And we understand that it was a circular letter. It was intended to be passed around from one church to another, copied and read out aloud and as we've been working through the letter this is what we've discovered about our identity in Christ Jesus in week one God's glory was revealed in salvation is planned by the father purchased by the son and preserved by the spirit and in week two we're growing in intimacy with God and we learnt that it requires spirit-filled wisdom enlightenment resurrection power displayed and one statement you might remember from week two is that it would be terrible if we've studied God's word all our lives, yet missed out on by salvation by 45 centimetres, the distance from our head to our heart. In week three, we're reminded that the resurrected sinners were dead in their sin, yet they're now alive in Christ. In week four, we read through one of my favourite verses in the Bible, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. And we learnt that salvation is by grace through faith, not by works, designed for service and last week week five we were united in Christ we were once foreigners to God's promise now the wall is broken down and joined together as the holy temple for the spirit so we arrive at the first verses in chapter three where Paul identifies himself as a prisoner of Christ for the sake of you please have your Bibles open now as we check out these 13 verses in chapter three of Ephesians now, if you're still going to grab your Bibles, go and do that and turn to the right spot. I'm going to spend some time and I'm going to pray now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together online and study your word today. We thank you for the opportunity that even amongst this crazy corona pandemic, you've provided for your church. We're blessed to be called your children, heirs together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Help us to set aside any distractions that we have and focus on you for the next half an hour as you speak to us through this passage. Thank you for giving me these words to say and this opportunity to serve you in this way. Amen. So this passage starts with Paul saying, for this reason. He wants to lead straight on from the end of chapter 2, but he breaks his train of thought from verse 2 to 13 to explain just what's popped into his head. You see, in verse 14, he resumes his thought and says, for this reason... And he begins a prayer. But we're going to be looking at that next week. So I can imagine Paul composing this letter where it says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. He glances around at his current situation, confined, unable to leave the house. 
And in verse 13, he says, Do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are in your glory. And in verse 7, Paul calls himself a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace. So this develops that key thought, the key theme that I want to explore this morning. And I want to draw this out, this theme of suffering servants and the attitude of a suffering servant. So what does this suffering servant do? Today we'll see that the suffering servant does three things. Firstly, the suffering servant offers freedom to others. Secondly, the suffering servant lives out God's will for the greater good. And finally, the suffering servant can approach God with confidence and freedom. I'd like to read a story. It's Charles Spurgeon's The Carrot and the Horse. And Tim Keller uses this in his book, The Prodigal God. And I think this best exemplifies the sort of attitude that we're talking about here in this passage. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. One day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. And he took it to his king and he said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. The king was touched and he discerned the man's heart. So as the gardener turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard all of this, and he said, My, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low, and he said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and he said, Thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, Let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. How often do you or I approach God with this same um, good, with the good deeds and with the heart of the nobleman rather than the love-filled service of our Lord and King. The gardener had the attitude in his heart to serve his king, giving his king the greatest carrot he has ever grown or will ever grow. And this brings us to our first point this morning. The suffering servant offers freedom to others. So we remember Paul had been placed under house arrest for speaking about Christ. And I wonder that we might have a newfound appreciation for what that was like. Now that we've all experienced our own version during this period of self-isolation, it seems like so long ago that uh, back in the last weekend of March, New South Wales was preparing to go into lockdown. But we didn't call it that at the time. We were asked to stay home to stop the spread of the virus. Grandchildren couldn't visit their grandparents. Workers were working from home if they could, and school students began taking their lessons from home. Sports stopped, both professionally and community sport, and our churches closed their doors, and we began to worship at home. These restrictions are now being lifted, and many of you are possibly travelling um, 
over the weekend, making the most of the public holiday that we're going to have tomorrow. We were a prisoner in our, in our homes for the sake of everyone else. But Paul tells us he was a prisoner of Jesus for the sake of you. Before he was converted, Paul would have hated the Gentiles. But now here he is serving them, outlining the mystery of this truth given to him by divine revelation. Just as Lynn explained in our kids' talk this morning, this mystery, it's clearly stated here in verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Now, this mystery is not something that was previously understood, and it had not been revealed. When the Old Testament prophets foretold of nations bowing down to God, they thought of it as nations conquered or nationalized. They were recognizing the Hebrew God as the one true God. If you were turned, tuned into the start of the service, I read through Psalm 148. I read out verses 1 to 6, and this is an example in the Old Testament where God's desire for all nations to praise him. And verse 7 goes on to say, Praise the Lord from the earth. And in verse 11, Kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. You see, God's holy apostles and prophets understood that one day it would happen that all nations would be praising the Lord, the creator God, but they had no idea how it would happen. And so when Christ was murdered on the cross, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and uniting all humanity with the Father, it's been revealed to Paul that we are all heirs together with Israel in the promise of Jesus Christ. We are all built together to become a dwelling in which God lives in his spirit. This is how it's going to happen. This is the mystery that's been revealed to Paul. Imagine that you're a world-leading virologist. And while you've been in corona isolation, you've discovered the cure to COVID-19. You'd put it on the shelf and pat yourself on the back and not tell anyone. No, no, you wouldn't. I would hope that you'd release the formula and you'd make it available to everyone. In reality, I'm actually fearful that the greed that seems to pervade everything these days, that if the vaccination is developed, it may be sold to the highest bidder. But our society expects that there's an ethical obligation, a moral duty and a responsibility to mankind to provide that vaccination to everyone. There might be a small cost for manufacture and distribution, but it ought to be universally available. You see, we've been given the cure to sin. We, have, we know that all have sinned. And Paul tells us in verse 2 that you have heard about the administrations of God's grace that was given to me for you. And again in verse 8, Paul says, This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the responsibility that we have. We cannot ignore this responsibility to offer freedom to others. The gift of grace is not ours to withhold. The suffering servant offers freedom to others, not begrudgingly, not for reward, but because this is part of the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do, Ephesians 
The application of this in everyday life is that your everyday life will bear witness to the saving grace that you've received. You will make ethical decisions in your workplace. You will minister to your family. You will avoid those things that discredit your integrity. This brings us to our second point, that the suffering servant lives out God's will for the greater good. If we think back to our gardener that grew the greatest carrot, he recognized the value in what he had and he did something with it. More than that, he didn't come to the king professing to be the greatest gardener. He was the gardener with the greatest carrot. I see Paul expressly, ex explicitly expresses this opinion of himself in verse 8. He writes, I am less than the least of all God's people. This grace was given me. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he expounds it a little further. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And again in 1 Timothy 1 verse 12, Paul tells us more about himself. In 12 he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength and considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. We see Paul never ceases to be amazed that one so unworthy as he should have been chosen for so high a task. His modesty was genuine, and yet despite being the suffering servant, he gets on with the task in verse 8 of our passage of preaching to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Just to be sure that we understand verse 9, Paul again refers to the mystery which for ages past was kept hidden by the Creator God. And in verse 10, we see that through the church, by the manifold wisdom of God, made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms. In other words, God's wisdom has many facets and aspects, and it's multifaceted. One question does pop out of verse 10. Well, who are these rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? Well, they're the angels. And I love the alliteration of the King James Version here, where it's rendered principalities and powers in heavenly places. Of this verse, Charles Spurgeon writes, These bright and glorious spirits, never having fallen into sin, did not need to be redeemed, and therefore, in the sense of being cleansed from guilt, they had no share in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. But they're interested in what's going on. As the angels and the whole host of heaven are better able to glorify God when they behold in wonder what God has done on earth in creating the church. And we remember from last week that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. The church is the community of believers so that each believer is called to live out God's will for the greater good, not for individual glory. For the Harry Potter, Harry Potter fans out there, can you remember what Neville Longbottom did in the first book, The Philosopher's Stone, to win the house cup for Gryffindor? Neville was shy, clumsy, introverted character and embarrassing things would happen to him throughout the story. The house cup, it's awarded to the house that 
attains the most points handed out throughout the year. And at the end of the last chapter, two houses are on equal points. And after the hero of the story, Harry Potter, has been awarded the bonus points for his heroics, no spoilers, you're going to have to read it for yourself, Albius Dumbledore, the headmaster of the wizard school Hogwarts, he makes one final announcement. It takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to your enemies, but a great deal more to stand up to your friends. You see, Neville Longbottom had got into trouble for being out of bed at night with Harry, Ron and Hermione. They were roaming about the hallways of Hogwarts. Now when the Golden Trio were going to head out late one night again, Neville stood up to them. He told them it's not right. They shouldn't be breaking any more rules and it was bad for the house Gryffindor. You see, Neville's just a character in a book, but it shows us this servant attitude of having courage to stand up to do the right thing. Neville is someone who's prepared to make the call on accountabilities. Is there a Christian in your life to help you keep accountable? Is there someone that you can partner with in the work of the church? You might feel unworthy or useless, but that's exactly how Paul feels, and he was still chosen for this mighty work. You need to ask yourself, how can God use me? Or maybe you need to ask God, how can he use you to your full potential? Be ready for the answer. It might not be glamorous. It might be tedious. The suffering servant who lives out God's will for the greater good will be glad to serve him, whatever the task. When we think back about our servant gardener, you may well be given additional land to work on, doubling your work. This brings us to our third point. Suffering servants approach God with confidence and freedom. And we read in verse 12 exactly this, that in him through faith we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The key words in this verse are important, that through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, us Gentiles, us Christians, followers of Christ, that we can have direct access to God. We can give God the proper respect as the creator and the Lord of all, and we know that we're not worthy to approach him. But in Hebrews 4, 14 to 15, it talks about Jesus, the great high priest, who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way. In verse 16 in Hebrews, it says this, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. So when we become Christians, we call ourselves children of God. We become known as children of God. And we can think of this idea in a different way. That I, and I'd like to quote Tim Keller, that the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. with a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. I'll say it again. The only person who dares wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. That's the kind of access we have to the Creator God. Isn't that incredible? This is what Paul is saying to us. This is what Paul is thinking about while he's in house arrest in Rome and he's writing the church in Ephesus. He's telling us that you can have confidence in Jesus 
Be willing to work for him and don't be discouraged. He's revealed the mystery of how we can be reunited with Christ. Have you ever prayed a big prayer? Have you ever stepped out of your comfort zone for God? When suffering servants approach God, they can do so with confidence and freedom. This is such a great truth for us. It would have been really easy for that gardener to dig up the best carrot he'd ever grown, take it home into his kitchen, peel it and cook it for himself. He didn't know how the king was going to react, but he approached the throne with confidence and freedom. And as we draw to the conclusion of our message this morning, I would like to remind us of three things that that suffering servant does. Firstly, the suffering servant offers freedom to others. Secondly, the suffering servant lives out God's will for the greater good. And finally, the suffering servant can approach God with confidence and freedom. Are you more like the nobleman or the gardener? Are you willing to serve the Lord beyond what you thought was capable? Paul, by his example, shows us the sort of attitude we need to have. If you haven't got a role in the ministries of the church, find one. If you haven't got accountability partner at the moment, find one. Be the gardener. Grow the best carrot you've ever grown or you'll ever will grow and then give that to the king. Before we play our last song this morning, I'm just going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're reminded today that you have drawn us to you, that you call us to be servants of the gospel by the gift of grace. And we thank you that we can approach you with confidence and freedom that we might discover the unsearchable riches of Christ. <laughs>